Well, 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 we are back from vacation. I'm hobbling back to life. I don't know about you. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for your patience as we released an interim episode and did not deliver our traditional Pop Apologist episode this week. It's coming to you a day late. Here it is. Yes, Chandler, I am absolutely hobbling my way back to the microphone. Can we talk about our Nantucket trip a little bit and then we'll get to the main part of the episode? Does that work? Yes. Yes, it does. What were your general thoughts? I am really excited to chat with you about it and share our experience because it's been a place I have been dying to go. And, you know, I'm sure our listeners want to hear about it if they haven't been. So I have been before. This was not my first rodeo. And Mm. ever since I went, I knew it was a place I wanted to return to. It's really special. It's really unique, I'd say. And yeah, there's something about it where you know, all of the houses kind of look the same and they all have these like kind of gray shingles. If you, I don't know, actually know what they're exactly called, but it almost feels like the entire island is like Disneyland because every single building is basically stunning and gorgeous and every single home is gorgeous. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's really serene. It's quaint, but also luxurious. And we like had some of the best food I've ever had. Yeah, I co-sign that. I think that it's just this really beautiful, breezy, casually elegant seaside town slash island. And I would absolutely go back. I can't wait to bring Kagan. It's just such an aesthetic place, like you said. Like everywhere you turn, mm-hmm. you know, the way the light hits the buildings, your eyes are met with constant delight wherever mm-hmm. you turn them on Nantucket. And I think that is just what makes it so special. Um, you had actually compared it to Martha's Vineyard, and you said that it's a lot more beautiful than Martha's Vineyard. Is that something you're willing to share publicly, or is that a secret thought? Yeah, I'm willing to share it publicly. I think Nantucket is overall like more gorgeous. Yeah. Um, And so what I will say is it's absolutely worth going. If I had to do it over again, I probably would. I would love to go for like a full week. I would love to settle into a house. I would love to like get a little routine going of, you know, sunsets by the beach, late night dinners or barbecuing. Um, I don't know. We went for only three nights. We kind of just had to cram it all in as much as possible. Pack a punch pack a punch. Yeah, but I would have really loved to have settled in. I could see it being a great place to go with friends for a week. Also, it has a really cute little bus system. I ended up taking the bus from Mm -hmm. Nantucket, the little main town, into the airport. And it's like this 20-minute, very nice, cute bus. Anyway, I was completely in love with it. And so I would definitely go back. Let's do our top recommendations for when people are there, what restaurants they need to go to. Okay. I'll just say the the meal that I cannot stop thinking about was at the Nautilus. It was exquisite. And we unfortunately ordered far too many appetizers. So by the time our like main entree came, which was this gorgeous duck feast, we were like so full, but we ended up gorging ourselves on it anyways, because it was that good. I don't really care about duck. I'm not a duck person. That has all changed because it was like this delicious duck confit and then rice and steamed buns. And it was just out of this world and so good. That was my, that was my top place. Yes. 
It's absolutely so delicious. It's a place where you have to get a reservation weeks in advance and you have to be on resi at a certain time and really nail the reso. So it's definitely worth doing that. My favorite meal was at Crew. It's C-R-U. It's the most incredible lobster roll you'll ever have in your life. We came back the next day and got another one. Get it hot with extra butter and then the aioli on the side. You'll just be in absolute heaven. So anyway, those are probably my two top picks. Anything else you want to talk about before we move forward? I'll just throw out a couple other places we went to. Proprietors for amazing drinks and also had delicious food. I would say the drinks were definitely the star and also a place called Straight Wharf that I also liked. Straight Wharf was so good. Really good, just like classic seafood. Another stop that you have to make is at Sister Ship. It's this really cute bar restaurant and it has a hotel as part of it called Far Away. The Far Away Hotel, I think it's like five or 600 a night. So it's not crazy. And I could just see doing a week at the Far Away Hotel, taking the bus to the beaches, mm-hmm. riding bikes, just having the most exquisite experience. So yeah. anyway, those are our tips. And with that said, Chandler, should we get to the heart of today's episode? Lauren, let's leave the island of Nantucket and let's fly 10 minutes east. I actually don't know which direction. And let's go to Martha's Vineyard, which is where the two people we're talking about today reside for a part of the year. Chandler, I would love nothing more. So today we are doing a deep dive on the romances of two presidents of the United States and first ladies, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And we decided let's just keep it as objective as possible. We're going to research these romances, these love stories, and we are just going to share for the people. And so today we are deep diving the love stories of Michelle and Barack and Donald and Melania. We're talking about at least one of the greatest love stories of all time. Not necessarily two, but at least one. And, you know, we're going to get into both and we'll take you on those respective journeys. Chandler, I'm not going to try to invalidate the um, the sacredness of anyone's marriage here today on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, we should be duly reminded that we have a very diverse audience in terms of opinions. Politics aside, I think we can say that, you know, one marriage is built upon the rocks and one is built upon the sand to quote a Mormon (laughs) song. One I would look to for advice and inspiration and, you know, another relationship I maybe wouldn't given the uh, broken road that it led to it. So that's all I'll say. Politics aside. Chandler. Yes, exactly. We're not here to talk about policy. We're here to talk about love, ardor, couples in love. And for the record, may I just say, there are plenty of left couples that I would not also want to delight in their romance. Can you Bill and Hillary? Bill and Hillary? Mm, I don't want to talk. mm. That's not a great American love story. It's definitely not. But it's one we should probably share at some point. At some point, we probably will. Before we run out of material. Do you want to begin with Barack and Michelle? Or do you want to begin with Donald and Melania? I think let's begin with Brock and Michelle because we have quite a bit to get through. This is a a little bit of a longer relationship than Donald and Melania's. So it's going to be a little bit of a longer report simply due to the length of chronology that we are tasked with reviewing today. Once again, no judgment. Mm -mm. No bias, no judgment. So Chandler, Mm -hmm. 
Michelle LaVon Robinson was born on January 17th, 1964 in Chicago. She had a close-knit family with a strong emphasis on education. She was always very intelligent. She skipped the second grade, went to a gifted magnet school, and graduated as a salutorian from her high school. She attended mm. Princeton University for her undergraduate and Harvard for law school. So just some basic biographical facts of the life of Michelle LaVon Robinson before mm -hmm. Barack came into her life. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Barack Hussein Obama II was born on August 4th, 1961 in Hawaii. Barack's father left the family when he was two and returned to Kenya, where he died in an automobile accident tragically 19 years later. Barack was raised in Hawaii by his mother and grandparents, but went to Occidental College in California and then Columbia University in New York for his undergraduate and Harvard Law School. Okay. So Michelle Chandler was not Barack's mm -hmm. first relationship. In the book, right. Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama, David J. Garrow details how Barack lived with the anthropologist Sheila Jager while he was a community organizer in Chicago in the 1980s. He proposed to her twice, but both Jager and wow. her parents turned him down. Wow. Yeah. Uh, quick question. Is this mm -hmm. the book that you had shipped to my house, Rising Star? Okay. I'm so glad you brought that up because yes, Chandler, it is the very book. Do you want to explain to our listeners what I did to you? I'm just, do you want to go get quickly. it? All right, dear listeners quickly. This is a quick interjection, a quick story about the book rising star. Lauren messaged me a month ago before one of our trips together. She was coming to New York or no, but this is before Gwen Island. Lauren said, I'm having a book shipped to your house. I need you to bring it with you to Puerto Rico. This is very important. Please bring this book. Please, please, please do not forget it. She texted me about this multiple times before the book even arrived about how important it was that I bring this book. I thought, oh, this is so annoying. Whatever. It's fine. It's a book. It's the night before my trip. The book arrives and I retrieve it from my lobby and I find that the box is extremely heavy, extremely heavy, way too heavy for a book. And I'm thinking, oh, does she ship something else? Are there perhaps blocks of gold in here or something else, you know, some other type of heavy material? Anyways, to paint a picture, the box weighed approximately five pounds, which is too much for a book to weigh. I come up the stairs and I'm like, oh gosh, what am I about to see? Upon opening the box, this is the book that Lauren has sent to my apartment and has instructed me to guard with my life and bring with me no matter what to Puerto Rico. All right? Is everyone ready? <laughs> I'm struggling to hold it. I'm, it's honestly really hard to me for me to hold with one hand. It's the size of an encyclopedia. It's like two Harry Potter sevens. Here's a water bottle for scale. <laughs> All right. So I proceed to then angrily, repeatedly call Lauren. I called her about five or six times before she picked up. She was asleep. And I said, I'm not bringing this fucking book. Don't try to little sister me into this. And, you know, you were like, it's not a big deal. And I was like, this is literally five pounds. It's like clothes I can't bring anymore. And thankfully you relented when you saw how big it was the next day. Well, in my own defense, I had no idea that it was so large. I just thought it was a normal sized book. I did not know it was the tome of all tomes. And our oldest sister, Ash, had sent us an excerpt from this book, an excerpt that was so tawdry, that was so juicy, that was just presidential 
biography at its most compelling and riveting. So I decided, okay, I'm sorry, if there is a biography about a US president that reads like the pages of Us Weekly, I would like to enjoy it while I can mm-hmm, feel mm-hmm. good about myself for reading some nonfiction. So I had no idea it was that big. And yes, Chandler put her foot down. It did not bring it to Puerto Rico. But I do want to lead our listeners on a journey, Chandler. Before we get back to the love story of Michelle and Brock, I would like Mm -hmm. to talk about the tale that's in that book, okay? Okay, okay. That led me to purchase it with such an urgent desire to read it, okay? Okay. Okay, did you see the text message that Kagan sent me that I posted on Instagram? About Clean Simple Eats? He said, SOS, we are out of the chocolate flavor of Clean Simple Eats, which by the way, I really didn't know that we could get it for free. So I've been paying full price and just ordering because I literally am a paying customer of this company. Clean Simple Eats, everyone, is the purveyor of the best protein powder on the planet. Can we just say, we've had some people get converted to the religion of clean symbol eats and they have messaged us saying you were right. It is so delicious. It will make milk taste like chocolate milk. If you get the brownie batter, or, you know, I love to put oh. the vanilla in a fruit smoothie. You just, you can't go wrong. You can't mess it up either. I would say you, it is so good. Someone texts me. They're like, does it have a weird aftertaste? I'm like, no, this is clean this simple is- eats. It tastes like melted ice cream, just mixed in cold water. And it's made from clean grass fed, perfect ingredients. Mm-hmm. What yeah. more do you people want? What more do you out want? Of this world? What more do you want? Yeah. I don't know. Cleansimpleeats.com, everyone. Go try the vanilla, try the chocolate. Use our code Popapologist for 10% off. We love the sponsor. I'll be drinking Clean Simple Eats on my deathbed. I hope so. All right, you guys. A quick announcement. We are running in March a $500 shopping spree giveaway. Very exciting. And to enter, all you have to do is recommend the podcast on your Instagram stories, tag us and include a link for your followers to easily tap and listen to your favorite Mm -hmm. episode of the podcast. Mm -hmm. We ask that you only do this if you would actually share the pod, you know, with your friends on your story. You know, this is is a giveaway um, of authenticity, if you will. Um, we also ask in that same spirit that you don't mention that it's a giveaway. Exactly. Please share the pod, share it on your stories, get the word out, spread the good word of pop apologists. Make sure to tag us. We'll see it. We'll respond that you're entered. And then we're going to pick one person at random and they'll win $500 to go to town with. So enter this month in March, you guys shopping spree giveaway. So this book was beautifully recapped in an article by the daily mail I'm sorry, not the book, but the excerpt that I read was recapped in this article entitled The College Professor Who President Obama Loved and Lost. Okay. Mm. The woman who Barack Obama proposed to twice, this is perfectly coinciding with what I just described during the deep dive, Chan. The woman who Barack Obama proposed to twice before he met Michelle was seen quietly getting on with academic life this week after revelations about their relationship emerged in a new presidential biography. Sheila Mayoshi Jagger, 53, appeared in good spirits as she walked with a female friend on the campus of liberal arts Oberlin College, where she is a professor of East Asian studies. Jagger revealed she was the former, and I'm sorry, I don't know if it's Jagger, Jagger, so I'm just going to oscillate between many different pronunciations as I recap this very tawdry tale. Jagger revealed she was the former president's first love in Rising Star, the making of Barack Obama by Pulitzer Prize winning biographer David J. Garrow. So 
This is a Pulitzer Prize winning biographer, this guy. And also this woman is a professor at a liberal arts school and she was on the record. So she shared secrets of their relationship, including that she continued to see Obama on and off for at least a year after he met Michelle. Okay. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. I always felt bad about it, Jager told Garrow, the biographer. All right. So let's get into a little bit of this relationship, which is like pretty titillating. Okay. So Brock and Sheila dated for a couple years and met each other's families before splitting up. Yet Sheila was almost entirely omitted from Obama's biography, Dreams of My Father, where she was simply combined with other white exes into one character. According mm. to Rising Star, she played a huge role in Obama's formative years, so much so that even after Brock met his wife-to-be Michelle, he kept seeing Jager on and off for at least a year, the book claims. The couple were very much in love in the late 1980s when they were living together in Chicago, and according to Sheila, they were an island unto themselves. Okay? Oh, wow. Ensconced in love together. They had a cat together named Max. So the relationship quickly progressed, and in the winter of 1986, while visiting Sheila's parents, Brock popped the question. But Sheila's parents were concerned that she was too young. She was only 23, and Obama was 25, and she turned down the proposal. But they remained together. But this is so interesting, Chandler. And then Jager began to realize her then-boyfriend's deep-seated need to be loved and admired. So this is, like, very, very mm. curious to me. Mm. So Sheila says that Obama became very ambitious very quickly and suddenly. I remember very clearly when this transformation happened. I remember very specifically that by 1997, about a year into our relationship, he had his sights on becoming president. Wow. So this is where it gets a little controversial. And this is just according to this biographer and Sheila. But Obama believed he needed to fully identify as an African-American to fulfill his political ambitions and believed that having a non-Black spouse could damage his prospects, according to the book. This reportedly put pressure on Obama's relationship with Sheila, who is Dutch and Japanese by heritage. So by the time he was set to leave for Harvard Law School, their relationship was on a rocky road, but Barack was not ready to give up Sheila Chandler, and he proposed for a second time. Wow. However... Sheila says that she sensed this proposal was out of a sense of desperation over their eventual parting and not out of any real faith in their future mm. together. Mm. Yeah. So then just one little story about these two. So friends told the biographer they were called a summer weekend trip to Madison, Wisconsin around the time. And there was an unusual tension between the couple. So this is what one of the friends said. Listen, it's one of those summers. It's hot. These houses are old. You die if you close the windows. So basically they're talking about how they could hear them like very clearly. And yeah. they went okay. back and forth having sex, screaming, yelling, having sex, screaming, yelling. Oh, wow. Sheila could be heard yelling, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's not a reason. Obama cared for her, the biographer writes, yet he felt trapped between the woman he loved and the destiny he knew was his. Barack's political destiny meant that he and Sheila could not have a long-term future together, no matter how much they loved each other. That's So juicy. anyway, it gets even juicier if you guys want to do some Googling for that excerpt because it goes quite into detail about that raucous weekend in Madison, Wisconsin. But we're not here to read porn over the airwaves. We're here to tell we're the facts. We're here to deep mm -hmm. dive a true love story. And this is something I want to say. 
I don't want to discredit the love between Michelle and Barack because I think Thank that- you. Yeah, you're welcome. I think that as a human being, there are people that, yes, like you fall in love with, you have amazing experiences with, but that doesn't mean they're the person that's going to help you become your best self. Mm -hmm. And who's to say that he didn't fall even more deeply in love with Michelle after Sheila, Mm -hmm. you know, the woman who actually could stand by his side while he's fulfilled his ultimate destiny. Yeah, I don't think this discredits his love for Michelle at all. It sounds like he, you know, was a passionate young man and he found himself in a relationship that was maybe great and good at the time, but not perfect for his future. I think it's very interesting that he saw that, you know, or at least from his frame of reference, he needed to have a different type of person by his side, or at least he needed to have a certain type of image. I think that's interesting. And I clearly shows like someone who had a vision of what their life was going to be. Yeah. And I think that the ultimate in intelligence is being extremely realistic and clear about the things you need to do and execute in order to fulfill your dreams and what it's going to take. And I think that I appreciate the fact that he was ready to set his sights on a different woman on his road to the presidency, Chandler. Mm-hmm. And let's yeah. get back to the woman at hand, one Michelle LaVon Robinson. So In her book, Becoming Chandler, Michelle discusses a few relationships she had before Barack, but nothing of real significance. There's no Sheila. There's only a Mm. Kevin, okay? Okay. So Kevin was a football player boyfriend that she dated during her sophomore year at Princeton University, and Michelle described him as a near impossible combination of tall, sweet, and rugged. While they were dating, Michelle thought he was destined for medical school, but he ultimately decided to put his schooling on hold and pursue a sideline interest in becoming a sports mascot. Michelle admitted that she unfairly judged him for that decision and dumped him as soon as she'd seen him in a furry mascot outfit. Yeah, this is from her book. I mean, if you think your person is going to medical school and then they decide to become a sideline performer, <laughs> that is, that's quite the adjustment. So I don't blame her. This is actually, I think, one of the most relatable and literally like, this is my favorite part of the deep dive was that Michelle was dating some like tall, rugged, handsome football player who she thought he was going to become a doctor. And then he just decides to be a like a jokester. I don't think it's shallow at all because she's literally at Princeton. Like you're just surrounded by academics and people with big, big dreams. Not that being a mascot isn't a big dream, but it's certainly a different kind of dream. That's for sure. I mean, I just love a pragmatic woman. I love a woman Mm -hmm. who is honest also about just it drying up down there the second she saw him in that life-size lion costume. But anyway, we digress. So Michelle and Brock, they both made their pragmatic choices on the road to finding each other. So after graduating from Harvard Law School, Brock began working at the Chicago law firm Sidley Austin LLP. This was in 1989 when he met Michelle. He was 28 and she was 25 and also working at the law firm. Michelle was assigned as his mentor, Chandler. So yes, Mm -hmm. this love story that, you know, is just so dignified two of the most Mm -hmm. dignified people gracing our political landscape. Yes, it began under the dark night of sexual harassment. So Michelle was assigned as his mentor and thought, I'd like to get a piece of that. No, (laughs) that was just an ad lib. She said she was not expecting to fall for Brock. Wow. I love that it kind of started with this power dynamic. It's sexy to me. It is hot. 
she said that when she spoke to him over the phone, she was not expecting Chandler, the beautiful bass, you know, that Barack Obama voice. She was not expecting that. And she was expecting more of a nerd. So we're going to hear her chat about what it was like to meet Barack for the first time. Okay. Okay. Meeting Barack Obama. Because, you know, he did not seemingly make a good impression on you the first meeting. Well, he was late. He was late. But did he have that walk back then? Because I'm thinking if he had that walk, that would be something that would be impressive. Did he have that walk back then? He had the walk. But let me tell you, the the precursor to meeting Barack, because I was his advisor. So my job was to greet him on the first day in a law firm. But there was all this hype about him, you know, and it was like, you know, this is really smart black young man from Harvard. And, you know, I was thinking this is a bunch of white people who think the brother is. So I was a little suspicious. I was like, let me be the judge. (laughs) They think he's articulate. Right. It's like a brother can talk straight and people are like, "Ooh, he's amazing. (laughs) And you go, that's not an anomaly. Well, yeah. and then yeah. I was, y'all, ladies, I was kind of skeptical because I was picturing <laughs> b- what a Barack Obama on paper would look like. So it's like Barack and that Obama. name, too, Barack, Barack Obama. Obama. Yeah. You know, like I grew up on the south side of Chicago with Robinsons and Smiths and Joneses. <laughs> I didn't know no Barack Obamas. You know, I didn't know that there were black people in Hawaii. Yes, I was a little ignorant. <laughs> So I had the impression of Barack Obama. Hi, I'm Barack Obama from Hawaii. So I thought I was going to be meeting a nerd, an intellectual nerd, right? And then I talked to him on the phone, and he had that Barack Obama voice. He was like, hey, how you doing? And I was like, oh, hey. I really did. It was just like, ooh. Maybe we can work with this. That voice didn't go with the picture of that little nerd I had in my head, you know? So I was like, okay, okay. But, but then he was late, and I was like, trifling black man coming late on the first day. On the first day? On the first day, he was late. But no, but, he, but he was impressed about being late, right? He showed up late, and he had that walk like, oh, I'm so sorry I was late. <laughs> You know, and I was like, all right, dude, you late on your first day and you're not even Russian. He had that Hawaii slow walk, so he walked off. I kind of looked at him like, mm, okay, 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 all right, all right. This woman is just so charismatic, by the way. She's so charismatic, and it's just, I'm sorry, but it's a really cute meet cute. Oh, it's so cute, and I think that, I think that there is just, something so interesting to me about their story and really how Michelle factors into it because I don't know Michelle Obama to me like is such a star but she really is like in the scope of the narrative of her life she is the secondary character to a Mm -hmm. president of the United States Mm -hmm. right and you'll hear a little bit about how these tensions kind of unfold throughout their marriage right right And yeah, it's just really interesting. So anyway, Barack arrived late to his first day of work with Michelle. And Michelle said, because I went to Harvard and he went to Harvard, the firm thought, oh, we'll hook these two people up. One month after meeting, Barack asked Michelle out on a date. She refused Mm. as she found the move to be completely tacky. 
In her book, Becoming, Michelle wrote, not once though did I think about him as someone I'd want to date. For one thing, I was his mentor at the firm. I'd also recently sworn off dating altogether, too consumed with work to put any effort into it. Okay, that's really interesting, this quote, Chandler, okay? Because what she tells ABC News all buttoned up in 2008 was that she was had no interest in him, hadn't even thought of him that way. But she's talking to Gail King in the clip we just played, and she's like, oh, yeah, the second I heard that voice, you know, saw him swagger. It's kind of interesting, the lies we tell ourselves, you know, <laughs> and the things we tell our, our friends when we're having locker room talk. So anyway, right. I'll let our audience be the judge of what really happened. But I will tell you that Barack offered to quit his job and asked Michelle out again. This time, <gasps> Chandler, the answer was yes. So on their first date, it was July 1st, 1989, a year and five days before I was born. Yeah, that's right, everyone. Wow. And they went on their first date. <laughs> wow. Beautiful. The universe, what man imagine mm -hmm. just all these cosmic signs that right. something great was happening three months <laughs> later john and deborah would would be twain in the in the uh don't be gross. In the, <laughs> would be one flesh don't in say flesh sense. I <laughs> and a child would be conceived back, anyway back to barack and michelle <laughs> So they went on their first date, which was a picnic, a long walk, a tour of the Art Institute, Baskin Robbins ice cream, and a movie. This is a long, long date. It's a long date. Spike yeah. Lee's Do the Right Thing movie. So he showed up to the date in his banana yellow Datsun. So I'm, I think this is a car with a rusted out four inch hole in the floorboard. Michelle finally let a bit of his charm Chandler sink in. Mm. He showed all sides, she said. He was hip, cutting edge, cultural, sensitive. The fountain, nice touch. The walk, patient, Michelle told The Telegraph. Wow. Brock told O Magazine, on our first date, I treated her to the finest ice creams Baskin Robbins had to offer. Our <laughs> dining table doubling as the curb. I kissed her and it tasted like chocolate. Michelle said we clicked right away. By the end of the day, it was over. I was sold and my panties were on the floor. No, okay. that last part I just added, everyone. Now, there's a 3,000-pound granite marker in Hyde Park in Chicago that marks the site of the first kiss. Oh, that's cute. Wow. I know. The owners of the shopping center installed it. Unfortunately, the Baskin-Robbins is now a subway. Mm, less romantic, for sure. You want to hear about the proposal, Chandler? Yeah. How long did they date for? Did they ever break up? They dated for two years. There's okay. no signs of a breakup worth noting. So mm -hmm. after two years of dating, Barack proposed to Michelle, and the story is quite cute. They went out for dinner on July 31st, 1991. Yes, everyone. I'm 11 months old, okay, at this moment, okay? As like my okay, first enough, words, enough. a future poet. <laughs> I'm able to My first words, a future great podcaster, <laughs> Barack Obama is looking over the table, a candlelit table, Chandler, at a beautiful restaurant. I don't know the name of. And this is what Michelle said. She says, as we were reaching at the end of the meal, Barack smiled at me and raised the subject of marriage. He reached for my hand and said that as much as he loved me with his whole being, he still really didn't see the point. Instantly, I felt the blood rise in my cheeks. It was like pushing a button in me, the kind of big blinking red button you might find in some sort of nuclear facility surrounded by warning signs and evacuation maps. Really? Are we going to do this now? 
She continued, eventually our waiter came around holding a dessert plate covered by a silver lid. He slid it in front of me and lifted the cover. I was almost too miffed to even look down, but when I did, I saw a dark velvet box where the chocolate cake was supposed to be. Inside <gasps> wow. was a diamond ring. Mm -hmm. I have the chills. I love I that misdirect. I mean, it's beguiling. It is so fun. It is so cute. Like, honestly, there's just something about the sheer confidence and swagger mm -hmm. to create mm -hmm. a little bit of a fight and then have right. the diamond ring sat in front of you. Don't even put it down yourself. Like, to this guy probably has so many moves, Chandler. No, I know. I know. Also, it's just so funny. Like, you're just so not even talking about marriage that like he raised the subject of marriage. Oh, fully. He still did not like, really see the point. You're talking like, about like there was the fact that he, again, is like putting you off. Right, right. There was no, she was not tipped off at all. Like that's really sublime. Yeah, it really is so cute. So apparently Barack looked at her playfully and he'd baited her. It had all been a ruse. It took her a second to dismantle from her anger and slide into joyful shock. She said he'd riled me up because this was the very last time he would invoke his inane marriage argument ever again, as long as we both shall mm. live. Okay. So oh, do you want to hear it from her lips a little bit? I do. Just one I do. minute. I do. Okay. I, do. I have 45 seconds prepared for you. We're out at dinner. You're We're like at, at a, a dinner supposedly celebrating the fact that he had finished the bar exam. So this was a, a celebratory dinner. And so and he, he just brings up it out of nowhere. Pick, he picks a fight. <laughs> and so I deliver because I too am a lawyer and I have my points to be made. So I was in full making my point and I was like in three and A and if you think and da 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 da. <laughs> and by then dessert was coming out and the waiter put a platter on in front of me with a little box with a ring on it and in the middle in the middle of the argument I was like wah, wah. <laughs> and I opened it up it, he opened up the box and he said now that ought to shut you up I'm sorry but <sighs> the fire and the passion and I mean these two are honestly too much for me sometimes I do we need to quit recording or take some cold showers or what? I mean, it's like, just, I don't know if we're going to get through this. Now that ought to shut you up. I mean, it's just like, I just no, also love swagger. It's, it's, it's so, so much swagger. And it's just like the sheer play. I love like, the playfulness and the mm -hmm. confidence and the playfulness of their relationship. I think it's, it's goals. It really is goals. It's so cute. I also love hearing her talk about how they would have such deep conversations and go mm -hmm. so deep and like, I don't know. It's wonderful. So Michelle and Barack were married on October 3rd, 1992 at Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago. Michelle's brother walked her down the aisle while Barack's brother served as best man. Following the mm -hmm. ceremony, the newlyweds held a reception at the South Shore Cultural Center and chose You and I by Stevie Wonder for their first dance. They went on a honeymoon to the California coast. Okay, so... Are you ready, Chandler, to exit the smooth sailings and enter far choppier waters? Ugh, I don't know if I am, but I'll settle in, I'll buckle in. I know they're still together at this point as of today, so I, I know I can hold on. Let no desolation be your lighthouse, everyone, as we navigate these rougher seas. So at the beginning of his political career, Barack served as an Illinois state senator from 1997 to 2004 and then a U.S. senator from 2005 to 2008. 
Once he started his U.S. Senate years, that really changed everything for the family. And things really changed because the spotlight was now on them. So Michelle was right by Brock's side during all of it and his right hand during his campaign. Michelle was also appointed at the time to vice president for community and external affairs at the University of Chicago hospitals. So on July 4th, 1998, Malia Ann Obama was born. In Becoming, Michelle revealed that she suffered multiple miscarriages tragically before Mm -hmm. giving birth to Malia and even underwent IVF treatments. On June 10th, 2001, Natasha Sasha Obama was born. So this is what Brock told Essence Magazine. He said, the great thing about the girls is they've got a wonderful role model in their mom. They've seen how Michelle and I interact, not only the love, but also the respect that I show their mom. So I think they have pretty high expectations about how relationships should be, and that gives me some confidence about the future. I joke about this stuff sometimes, but the truth is that they are smart, steady young women. Chandler, here is when we all need to take our Dramamine as the boat starts getting rocky on these seas. So things weren't always perfect. Like any marriage, Chandler, there were the stresses. There were the bad years. So they had the stress of raising a young family while building two very big careers. So this is what Michelle told Revolt TV. She said, people think I'm being catty by saying this, but there were like 10 years where I couldn't stand my husband. And guess when it happened? When the kids were little. And for 10 years, while we were trying to build our careers and, you know, worrying about school and who's doing what, and I was just like, ugh, this is not even. And guess what? Marriage isn't 50-50 ever, ever. There are times when I'm 70, he's 30. There are times where he's 60, I'm 40. But guess what? 10 years, hmm, we've been married for 30 years. I would take 10 bad years over basically losing 30 years together. Mm-hmm. And when people say, you know, they've had five bad years and they can't take it, she basically rolled her eyes. So everyone, wow, these two were in it for the long haul. They endured to the end and it's paid off. I like that advice. Yeah. I think it's, there's something like nice to know and kind of comforting that you can go through 10 bad years and still overall have a great marriage. I mean, Mm -hmm. I hope to never have to do 10 terrible years, but I will also say that I really think that it's kind of comforting for people who are having bad experiences to know that it's not always worth jumping ship when the seas get choppy. And I think it's important to note that they are two very powerful individuals who are trying to build two big careers. I think that is, that's pretty unique, I think. And so I think that definitely made, I think, their harder times more extreme. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so I think 10 hard years is a a lot of time. But I also think about, you know, when Heather and Terry Dubrow talk about how there are some times where you have bad years, bad months. And, you know, it's just comforting to know that you can endure hard times, hard extended times and come out stronger. You don't always have to jump ship like you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's kind of what marriage is all about, right? Being in it right. for bad times, being in it for the good times. Speaking though of Heather and Terry, I recently heard on a podcast that the reason that they're so rich is because of Terry made some really good investments like a long time ago. Oh, really? So anyway, oh, it's not just boob jobs and Botox. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is a quote from Michelle. She says, 
marriage, it has to be a true partnership and you have to really, really like and respect the person you're married to because it, it is a hard road. This is what I tell young couples. Don't expect it to be easy, melding two lives and trying to raise other lives and doing it forever. I mean, that's a recipe made for disaster. So there are highs, there are lows, but in the end, if you can look them in the eye and say, I like you, I stopped believing in love at first sight. I think you go through that wonderful love stage, but when it gets hard, you need a little bit more. Okay. And so here is a quote from her. Barack and I talk about how valuable it was that we were older in mm -hmm. it. I chose to share so much about our marriage is because I think about young couples mm. and how little we know when we get married about what marriage is. Yeah. I mean, nobody is giving us a guidebook on how to do this thing called building a life with a whole nother person. Mm -hmm. Marriage is inherently unequal, not just gender-wise, it's just there's no way that you ever have 50-50. Mm -hmm. And we talk about it in those terms, like, well, you do half and I do half. Life isn't that clean. People think about me and Barack as hashtag relationship goals. And usually when you have couples like that, all you see is the good stuff. You see the fist jabs mm -hmm. and the loving mm -hmm. touches mm -hmm. and the m moments that, you know, make people think, oh, aren't they great? But to me, I felt like if I'm not telling you how hard it was, I'm not being honest with you about what you need to do to build this thing that right. we have. Okay, are you like crying right now? She's, she's incredible. And I'm sorry if that makes me take a side in the aisle, but yeah, I love her. <laughs> All right. So Chandler, let's turn to Barack becoming president. So after 21 okay. months of campaigning, Barack Obama was elected the 44th president of the United States. But during his acceptance speech in front of a giant crowd in Chicago on election night, he had one person to thank, his wife, Michelle. I would not be standing here tonight without the unyielding support of my best friend for the last 16 years, the rock of our family and the love of my life, our nation's next first lady, Michelle Obama. If you were going to list the 100 most popular things I've done as president, being married to Michelle is number one, he said during a State of the Union address in 2010. Wow. So then he tells Oprah Winfrey in 2011, obviously I couldn't have done anything that I've done without Michelle. Not only has she been a great first lady, she is just my rock. I can count on her in so many ways every single day. Still, Chandler, the White House years were not easy for these two. And they were specifically not easy for Michelle. So this is what Barack wrote in his book about his years as president and how they were difficult on their marriage. He says, despite Michelle's success and popularity, I continue to sense an undercurrent of tension in her, subtle but constant, like the faint thrum of a hidden machine. It was as if, confined as we were within the walls of the White House, all of her previous sources of frustration became more concentrated, more vivid, whether it was my round-the-clock absorption with work or the way politics exposed our family to scrutiny and attacks or the tendency of even friends and family members to treat her role as secondary in importance. Lying next to Michelle in the dark, I'd think about those days when everything between us felt lighter, when her smile was more constant and our love less encumbered, and my heart would mm. suddenly tighten at the thought of those days not returning. I know. I mean, you really have to consider what that would be like, right? Like to have a husband who was president. And so your concerns, your issues, things that you want to deal with, they're just never going to be as important no. as mm -mm. the concerns of the nation, the right, United right. States of America. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be really hard. And especially, I think it would be very difficult to be married to someone who 
truly would always eclipse you and you would always be the Mm -hmm. plus one. That's tough. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's go to another quote. Michelle LaVon Robinson, girl of the South Side. For the fast... For the past 25 years, you have not only been my wife and mother of my children, you have been my best friend. You took on a role you didn't ask for, and you made it your own, with grace and with grit and with style and good humor. He was shedding a tear, Chandler, when he said that. Wow. It's strange, though. There's no part in Becoming or Obama's memoir where he discusses their transition to becoming part lizard. So that's not part of this research, (laughs) unfortunately. So we don't know anything about that yet. But if someone can point me to maybe recordings where they've talked about it, we can insert those clips. It might be in Rising Star because, you know, that book has plenty to say. (laughs) No, Lauren, they're not lizard people. I love the Obamas. I love them and I don't believe them to be lizard people. Listen, I don't think they're lizards either before they were replaced Mm. potentially, though, by the lizard people with their lizard entities. Do you think a lizard could make a playlist (laughs) with the top songs of the summer? No. Okay, in reality, I don't think Barack Obama or Michelle are lizards or lizard people, and I don't think they've been replaced um, by the elites. But are you just asking questions? You're just asking questions? <laughs> I'm just joshing around. I'm just having mm-hmm. some fun. The one thing I will mm-hmm. say, though, and this this is going to be just something I'm going to say. I don't think Barack Obama makes those playlists. I don't think he reads all those fucking books. It's just, it's too weird when it's like a young adult book about a 14-year-old girl's triumph over, I don't know, something shallow. It's just like, he puts just like the top books and songs on a list. It's like a PR thing. I guarantee you, a team does. Lauren, he's obsessed with music. He's constantly on Spotify curating that playlist. No, that would be very unlikely. And also it'd be kind of like, I'd be like, oh, you don't you have like more important things to do. I mean, can you imagine if our dad was like putting together his yearly playlist and on it was like Billie Eilish. I don't just right. be like, dad, this is so cringe. You don't have to stay relevant. You go write your biography by hand in your study, okay? We don't need to hear your thoughts about Frank Ocean. Anyway, so OprahDaily.com reports that the Obamas left the White House in January 2017, and Michelle was ready to live in a more normal way. She said, I want to open my front door without discussing it with anyone, and I just want to walk. I want to go to Target again. I've heard so many mm-hmm. things have changed in Target. I tell my friends they're going to have to give me a retraining for like, what? Okay. How do you do it at Target? Has the checkout changed? What's going on? The Obamas went on a family vacation to Italy, Hawaii, and the British Virgin Islands after they left the White House. The Obamas regularly make sweet posts about each other on social media. And since leaving the White House, Barack and Michelle have worked on finding each other again and refocusing on the reasons why they fell in love. Wow. I know. Stunning. I I love that Target bit. That's so funny. There is this really cute quote where Obama says that his favorite thing ever is just like a, a nice cold martini and chatting with his wife at the end of a long day. Oh my gosh. By the way, we are going to get, I don't, gonna care. Hate I don't this. care. You know, I don't care. Here's the thing. 
you can love people's love without talking about their policies and their politics. So I think that if you're at the point where you cannot recognize the true love between Michelle and Barack, it might mm-hmm. be time to turn inward. This is an across the aisle deep dive. Inward. Their love is real. Their love is real and they're not lizards. And I'm just ready to go on the record and say that. Before we totally turn the page, Chandler, I need to talk with you about a very exciting announcement we have for August. Okay, let's hear it. So this month, everyone, we are partnering with Casita Jewelry. They are sponsoring the podcast. My best friend in Puerto Rico, Sara, is the founder of Casita Jewelry, and she really has the most incredible taste. Her jewelry line is filled with the cutest pieces, the cutest earrings, the cutest necklaces. I mean, the bracelets. I just feel like she has really, really, really good taste. And she also has vacation jewelry now. So jewelry that isn't fine jewelry, jewelry that might be gold filled or gold plated. That way, you know, you can bring it on vacay and not care if you lose it necessarily. Just less expensive options, more affordable options. So I'm super excited that Casita Jewelry is sponsoring the podcast this month. And in partnership with Casita Jewelry, we're really excited because we are bringing our listeners a 30% off discount. This is a site discount for the month of August. So this is a pretty substantial discount. This would apply to tennis bracelets, tennis necklaces. This applies to everything on her site. You can get 30% off using code POPAPOLOGIST for the month of August. So make haste, don't delay because it is while supplies last everything. So once those tennis bracelets, once everything's sold out, I'm not sure how many more she can get, if she can get any at all. And the last time we just even posted her link, you know, we had quite a few people order with her. So if you want something, don't delay. Use the code POPAPOLOGIST for 30% off at casitajewelry.com. Yes. The diamond tennis bracelet that I wear all day, every day, it's my favorite thing. It's from Casita. I love it so much. Everyone go check her stuff out. It's also beautiful. And yeah, we're so excited that she's sponsoring us. All right. And with that, let's get back to the episode. Chandler, let's go to the second deep dive we have today prepared. I cannot wait to go through this love, to have you lead us through it. Take us by the hand. Let's let's talk about the fact that I'm doing a little bit of a biography on Donald Trump is so funny to me. Let's just get right into it. Donald was born in 1946, and he was the fourth of five children. He was raised in Queens, New York. His father had a successful real estate development business, and Donald uh, and his brothers all worked there. So Donald helped the business grow, and it was extremely successful in the 1980s, right? Okay. So let's get into Donald's first marriage, Ivana. Donald met Ivana in 1976. She was out in New York City with a group of models helping to promote the Winter Olympics in Montreal, okay? And let me tell you what happened, Lauren. Donald spotted Ivana from across the room at a bar called Maxwell's Plum. Okay. It's now closed. And he used his pole to get Ivana a table. They had a whirlwind romance and were married that very same year. Okay. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. They had three children together, Donald Jr., Ivanka, and Eric. Oh, I didn't realize that all those kids were from the first marriage from from Ivana yeah so donald had a highly publicized affair with marla maples which resulted mm. in donald and ivana's divorce and their divorce was obviously very contentious they were on the front page of the new york gossip and during one deposition ivana trump accused donald of rape and pulling out her hair according to the uh. new york 
Daily News. She later retracted the statement and said under oath that she felt, quote, violated, but did not mean to say rape in a, quote, literal or criminal sense. So this is going to be a, a departure from this our is, previous romance. Oh, my gosh. This has been a tone shift, if there ever was one. I feel yeah. like we should have had a warning for people. Sorry, everybody. Okay. In the divorce, though, Ivana got $14 million, a 45-room Greenwich, Connecticut mansion, and an apartment at Trump Plaza, and the use of the Mar-a-Lago estate for one month a year. That's a pretty good settlement. That's a pretty good life. Yeah. So he did have the affair with Marla Maples, and he did marry her three years after the divorce with Ivana, and she gave birth to their daughter, Tiffany. All right. Mm. So this wedding, very lavish with a thousand guests. And she borrowed a $2 million tiara for this wedding. But sadly, they divorced in 1999 and she only received 1 million from their divorce settlement. So clearly Donald learned his lesson, you know, in between Ivana's divorce and, and Marla's. I mean, I hate to say it, but if you're married to Donald Trump, a million dollars is fucking nothing. If that's your divorce settlement. Right. Okay. Melania Novs, later professionally changed to Naus, was born in Slovenia in 1970. She has one sister, Inez, who she's very close to. And she also has a half-brother who she reportedly has never met. So Melania began modeling at the age of five. And when she was 26, she moved to the United States to pursue modeling. So in 1996... So they met two years after she moved to the U.S. when she was then 28 and Donald was 52 at a New York Fashion Week party. Let me tell you how they met. Melania told Harper's Bazaar he wanted my number, but he was with a date. So, of course, I didn't give it to him. I said, I'm not giving you my number. You give me yours and I will call you. And this is kind of cute. This is kind of cute. I will say I will concede. According to Cosmopolitan Magazine, he gave her all of his phone numbers. His office phone number, the Mar-a-Lago phone number, his home in New York phone number, all his phone numbers. That's kind of cute. I can objectively say that that's cute. It's definitely cute. I'm just curious. It's such a weird move to be like, I'm not giving you my number, but I'm going to call you. Like, what's the what's the move there? Right, right. I think it's like on, on her terms. Melania is a beguiling woman, and I'm... She is. I think it's safe to say there are probably going to be more details that we find equally mysterious, Chandler. Mm-hmm. So a few days later, she called him. And at the time, this is when Donald was separated from Marla. And they went on their first date to Mumba, which was a hot spot at the time. Apparently, it was also Leonardo DiCaprio's favorite spot. And then they begin dating, we presume. One year into their relationship, she starts to get some heat. People think she's only dating Donald for his money. And this is what she had to say to those claims. Quote, I think you can't be with a person if it's not love, if they don't satisfy you. This is what she told the New York Times in 1999. You can't hug a beautiful apartment. You can't hug an airplane. You can't talk to them. End quote. Hey, I think there's something tender there and very true. Oh, absolutely. I will say I think you can hug an airplane. I, I for one, think I could hug an airplane. <laughs> when I'm seated in 28F, okay, for the sixth hour in a row, I can mm-hmm. absolutely hug a private plane. I can fuck a private plane. Absolutely. I can procreate with a private plane. Yeah. Um, yep. It's all I need is a private plane. I could have a very sweet life with a private plane. <laughs> absolutely. But, you know, a source trying to say that she was a gold digger said, quote, she ran into Donald at just the right time. She was just about all out of money at the end of her rope and about to move back to Eastern Europe. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
But by April 2004, after five years of dating, Donald proposed to Melania at the Met Gala, which is kind of cute, with a 15-carat diamond engagement ring that he picked out himself. Wait, this was after five years of dating? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's a long time. 15 carats is also huge. That's wild. Yeah. Okay. And she, of course, said yes. Yep. Okay. So let's see. I'm going to play a little clip about him talking about the proposal. How did the proposal take place? Well, we were together. Give it to us. We were together five years. We literally have never had an argument or forget about the word fight. We never even had an argument. We just are very compatible. We get along. And I just said, you know what, it's time. And it wasn't a big deal. It was almost That's like the way it was you did obvious. It. You know what, it's time. No, I did. I did it a little better than that. I, you know, without going into too much detail. But <laughs> it was time, and we just have a very good relationship. It was time. It's so bizarre for me to be doing a deep dive on Donald Trump. Let me just say, because <laughs> he's a man I I despise. You're letting your pink pussy hat show. Well, on this issue, I am. Oh my gosh, we're here to talk about love, not about policies. I also think it's kind of crazy like to be like, oh, we never had a fight. We just were extremely compatible. Well, don't you think that just speaks to like the lack of depth? Yes, literally. Lauren, you're letting your bias show. Lauren. <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't wait for the one-star reviews to start rolling in. Okay, I please know. proceed. This is, a, this is a true minefield. Okay, so... Trump said, quote, we're together five years, and these five years, for whatever reasons, have been my most successful. I have to imagine she had something to do with that. That's nice. It's still like about the bottom line, though. His most successful. No, absolutely. I'm trying so hard to be removed. Trying so hard. Okay, well, let's get into their wedding. So in January 2005, they were married at an Episcopal church in Palm Beach, followed by a reception at Mar-a-Lago. It was a million-dollar wedding. was covered by every media outlet. 350 social and political powerheads attended. Melania wore a custom hand-beaded Duchess satin Dior gown, and the embroidery on it took 550 hours to apply. And the wedding cake that they had is still the second most expensive in the world, and each guest was given their own chocolate cake to take home. Sounds absolutely like a banger of a party. Yeah. I'll rattle off a few people who went. Bill and Hillary Clinton, Billy Joel, Anna Wintour, Heidi Klum, Shaq, Barbara Walters, Derek Jeter, etc. So, you know, star-studded. And Melania was also featured on the cover of Vogue in her wedding dress. Wow. On the cover of mm-hmm. Vogue? Okay. Yes. Wow. And then a year later, they welcomed their son, Baron. Beautiful. Yes. And they lived a quiet life for the rest of their life. A quiet, humble life. They gave everything away. They thought, we don't need this. They looked at the opulence of the wedding. They looked at just the excess. And they said, let's just turn to a life of giving. Right. Okay? Right. I don't think that's actually what happened, Chandler. Is that it? Is that the end of the deep dive? No, that's not the end. So in June 2015, Donald announced his bid for the presidency. And Melania told GQ that she encouraged her husband's political aspirations. So she didn't go on the campaign trail with him. She stayed home to take care of Barron. And I'm going to play a little clip of her talking about his campaign and their marriage. She has been mostly absent from the campaign trail until tonight. You too. Come join us. Mrs. Trump, it's a pleasure to see you. And we don't see you that often. You're not on the campaign trail. How do you feel about campaigning? Well, it's my choice not to be there. I support my husband 100%, but we have a nine-year-old son together, Baron, 
and I'm raising him and this is the age he needs a parent at home. Were you involved in the decision of your husband to become president? We discuss a lot, yes, and uh, I encourage him and you I, did? You I encourage, encourage him, him because I know what he will do and what he can do for America. He loves the American people and he wants to help them. All right. This is something I want to say. Yeah. I think that Melania Trump, I think she speaks like five languages. And so while I would say that maybe not, she didn't come across with the most eloquent or thoughtful thoughts, I just always want to give respect to someone who's an immigrant who speaks many, many languages as a a basic white bitch who speaks one language. And so I just don't want us to have any sort of tone of mockery at all because I respect that. I mean, if you have a nine-year-old, do you really need to be on a campaign trail? I don't know. You tell me. All right. So after footage of derogatory comments that Donald had made in 2005 resurfaced in October of 2016, Melania defended him in a CNN interview. She characterized her husband's comments as boy talk and theorized that Donald was led on, egged on by Billy Bush to say dirty and bad stuff. I'm sort of paraphrasing. But Melania really stood through his side throughout all those controversies. I mean, maybe someone might call this rude to say, but I just think she had a very rational head on her shoulders. I don't think she entered that marriage thinking this is going to be one of deep fidelity and like true passion. It seems like it's something of a mercenary relationship and a transactional one between the two of them. And they're absolutely fine with it. Like, I don't even think she cares. Like they have an arrangement. That's why they don't fight because it's like, they probably have an open marriage to begin with. But anyway, these are just my speculations. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, his affair with Stormy Daniels, when that came to light, Melania said that his alleged infidelities were quote, not a focus of mine. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's extremely diplomatic. It has been a tough year for you personally. You're not the first first lady to have to deal with her husband's alleged infidelities. Has this put a strain on your marriage? It is not concern and focus of mine. I'm a mother and a first lady, and I have much more important things to think about and to do. I know people like uh, to speculate and media like to speculate about our marriage and um, uh, circulate the gossip. But I understand the gossip sells newspapers, magazines, getting advertisers. And unfortunately, we live uh, in this kind of world today. I mean, I can understand how she doesn't want to talk about it. And it's probably not a concern of hers, right? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's what you said. I think they have an arrangement. And I don't think that it is a concern of hers, frankly. Yeah. So what what's next, Shan? So just to close the loop on the Stormy Daniels affair, Donald has denied both the affair and knowing about any type of payments that were made to keep it quiet. And that kind of concludes their presidency stint. And Donald and Melania moved from Washington, D.C. to Mar-a-Lago after Joe Biden was sworn in. And that's kind of the end of that. They are still together. Barron is still, you know, a growing boy. And yeah, I guess... Only time will tell what will happen to these two. Only time will tell. But they are not headed towards any dissolution that we know about. Mm-mm. So Mm-mm. for all intents and purposes, potentially in the same place as Barack and Michelle. Right. They've been married longer than you. That's, that is absolutely <laughs> the case. 
They've been through more than Kagan and I have. That's for sure. That's Chandler, for damn sure. Lauren. Thank you so much for being gathered here today with me, for hopping on to do this deep dive. You guys, we really wanted to do it on the island of Nantucket because something felt presidential about doing that. But we had to wait and do it when we were home. So we both had a microphone. So we appreciate your patience. We hope you like the Nantucket Dispatch. Yes, absolutely. Love you guys. See you on the Patreon this week. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. See you on Patreon. That's all for now, folks. Don't forget, give us a five-star review. Hit us up on Instagram at Apologists, and we will see you next week, live every Wednesday. Bye.